Please take your Bibles and go back to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you somewhere. And if you grab that, go to page 382, I believe, you find Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And today, I'll be picking up, of course, where we left off last week. And that means beginning in verse 6. But I'll read Ecclesiastes 8, 1 through verse 9. But today's preaching text is 6 through 9. 6 through 9 for the preaching text. If you're thumbing through your Bible, having trouble, just go to the middle, lay it open maybe to Psalm, the Psalms, and then go a couple books to the right, and you'll arrive there. All right. If you've made your way there, please go ahead and stand as I read God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The pessimist complains about the wind. The optimist expects the wind to change, and the realist adjusts the sails. One of my favorite quotes, and I recently discovered it. Angie and I discovered it together, actually. We were driving home from Texas, and we discovered this quote. And I love this quote uh, because the quote almost in a way summarizes what biblical wisdom is. Uh, Biblical wisdom seeks to help you to live in the world, the reality of the world as we know it post-fall. And that's what Ecclesiastes is, this biblical wisdom given to us from Solomon uh, while the pessimist complains about the wind and an optimist might seek to make the best of a bad situation, uh, a realist will adjust accordingly. They'll adjust the sails. One part of navigating the world east uh, of Eden and applying wisdom to your life is knowing your limits. Knowing your limitations, your limits. And everyone has limits. Um, everybody's, everybody has something that's just holding you back, maybe has prevented you from becoming all that you could be. Um, and there's, there's a big industry capitalizing upon this. Can you believe that Americans would capitalize upon things? Right? Uh, there's a huge industry that seeks to help you to see your limits, identify them, and to break through them. It was actually uh, one of the best-selling books of 1999. That's the year I graduated from high school. It was a book... Um, that sold over a million copies, and its goal was to do this very thing, to identify limits and ignore them. Listen to uh, just a little bit of this. Overcoming fears and finding success. To do that, you have to go further than you can see. To go to the next level and to make your problems your promotions, you have to be able to identify limits and ignore them. Limits are thrown at us every day, and every day we have a choice to accept or reject them. This book is written to attack limitations that hold you back from becoming all that you can, can be. So the key to happiness, it would seem, from a worldly perspective, would be to identify the limitations in your life and to ignore them and to break through them. But in our text today, what's interesting to me is we see the exact opposite of that. It seems clear that Psalm is saying to us, Know your limitations and don't try to exceed them if you want to be happy, if you want happiness. 
Now, of course, we have to qualify this a little. This doesn't apply always universally because it's a good thing to break through your limits, the limitations that are upon you in your life. And we should seek to glorify God. Everybody should seek to glorify God by becoming the best version of themselves that they can be. Um, we shouldn't be okay with not being the best that we can. You know, and some things just aren't natural for people, even in a church people. Some people are limited by their um, propensity to being introverted, right? You're, major, you're majorly introverted and you really don't, aren't comfortable being around people. That can be a big limit, limitation for being in a church. Are we just to accept that limit? Well, of course not. You know, we are to identify and break through that so that we could fellowship with one another and enjoy all the blessings that God has for us. You know, some of you are still in the military and you're not very good at PT. Um, are you just to say, okay, that's all right. I'll just be an average leader. I don't think so. It may be harder for you uh, than someone else, but you can't just accept that limitation. You identify it and you move beyond it for God's glory. Some men have never had a good father in life. That's a major, major limitation in your life. You don't know what it is to be a good father. You don't know what it is to be a good husband. You just to accept that? Of course not. You identify that limitation. By God's grace, you're able to break through it. You break through that cycle. You become the best version of yourself. However, we do need to make further distinctions. Some limitations, they are meant to be identified and not transgressed. Right? We have these put in place by God. They could be transgressed. You, you could do that. The world may advise you to do that. Um, but to do so would be unwise and lead to your unhappiness. Um, one of these, obviously, is God's limitations that he's placed upon sex. God has designed sex to be between a man and a woman for life inside the confines of the covenant of marriage. And the world says to transgress that limit that's holding you back. And God says, don't break this limit I put in place or you won't be happy. So there are limitations you can see and you can, you can break, but you shouldn't. But then there are also limitations that are just they're particular to you just as an individual. They might could be broken um, if you want to put in the time and the effort to break them, but they may not be worth your time and the effort, right? And this is one of the things that we are to do as parents. So here's some free parenting advice. You didn't come here for that, but here's a little free parenting advice. A good thing for you to do for your kids is to help them identify how God has gifted them and to know their limitations and not to spend all of their time trying to worthlessly work against the giftings that God has given them and become something they could maybe do, uh, but isn't worth doing. For instance, Drake's not going to be a stand-up comedian. Okay? He thinks he's funny, and he tells us a lot of jokes, and he's usually the only one that's laughing. And he's always loved Batman growing up. That's been his favorite superhero. But in this way, he's really more like the Joker, in that he's the only one laughing. So I'm not going to encourage him to pursue that field, right? That would be a huge waste of time. Could he pull it off? Probably. Brooke's not going to be a therapist. I don't know if you know that about Brooke or not. She's probably a good listener. But she's probably going to say, well, here's your problem. You're just really dumb. So don't be dumb, and you'll be okay. So she's, we're not going to help her to probably pursue those type of things. Like We're limited. Some things aren't worth breaking through. Now, joking aside, uh, a great deal of unhappiness in life comes from <clears throat> us not respecting the limitations that are put in place upon us, that God has placed upon us. Because some limitations, right, they are in a category all their own. There are some that are universal, that apply to everyone, not just to individuals, <clears throat> and they're set in stone. They can't be broken. And it causes a great, a great stress and anxiety when we try to break them. Solomon's already raised one of them. Uh, he already raised one in 7, 710, verse 710, where he talked about people who are living in the past. He said it this way, Why were the former days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask this. <laughs> There's a limitation that God has put in place that's set in stone that no one can break. And yet people still, they try. They live in the past, and that doesn't bring them any peace or comfort. It's foolish to think you can go back and change anything in the past. Wisdom lives in the present. 
And today we're going to see more of these universal limitations that have been placed upon us. And really, knowing them and accepting them, just accepting them for what they are, they're key to, uh, for, to happiness. Remember, this section begins about the wise man and how wisdom makes his face shine. It makes him happy to live in these spheres that God has put in place upon us. Now, remember where we are here in chapter 8. Last week, we began a series of what would be five that have to do with the wisdom applied to various spheres. The first one was, had to do with the king and, and human governments. That was wisdom applied with respect to the authority of the king. And there were four kind of ways that we apply wisdom. There were be a law-abiding citizen. Do, do not be quick to show public disapproval. Be warned of the danger of working against the king. And be discerning when opposing the king. Now, coming right off of that, continuing from that flow is verse 6 through 9. And the background still is, I think, the context is human government. And so in Solomon's case, the king, who has absolute supreme authority over everyone. And I think verse 9 helps us to know that's still the overall background. Look at verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. If that's not a good description of human government, I don't really know what is. Man having power over man to his hurt. Even the best government that's ever been, right? Even Solomon's own government didn't work for everybody. There are people that even Solomon had, in his, in his governance, through his great wisdom, had harmed. Um, governments, after the fall, are imperfect, and they can harm people. You can be harmed by someone else's government, or your own government might even harm you. So I think this is still here in this sphere. But this, this text, I think Solomon really, it, he's, he's a genius. And the way that he writes has more layers than one. Okay, as we'll see as we go through this text today, as we link back into those observations about the king, we're going to see that there's behind this a greater, there's a greater king. There's the king behind Solomon who's imposed all of these limitations. And wisdom means we observe and we accept them. Verse 6 helps us to see that. Verse 5, it links us from those observations. Verse 5, think realistically about how you will act. Right? Verse 5 tells us, if you look back at your text, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. There is a time and there is a way to oppose the king, perhaps. Uh, to raise a question, to talk to him privately about something. That links us in to verse 6 as we continue to talk about the appropriate time and the just way. Here's what we'll see today. Uh, as we look at wisdom applied to our limitations, we're going to see two limitations that you must accept uh, if you want to be happy. Two limitations you must accept if you want to be happy. You know, we really don't like to think about our limitations. But, but growing as a Christian, it means that we will. And not just these two, but it means that we would know ourselves and seek to be the best version of ourselves that we can be by God's grace. And part of that's knowing our limitations. Um, and I think that's God wants us to be, in this respect, a realist. We're to be spiritual realists, everyone. Um, as we apply wisdom to the world, but also as we apply wisdom to our relationship with God, we're to be realist. Some people are pessimist. They think God could never love them no matter what. No matter anything that they ever do, they would never be good enough for God. And in some respect, they kind of are right. But they will take that even a step further and think things like Christ would never die for someone such as them. That's a pessimist. And there's the optimist who thinks that they are just great in themselves. Why wouldn't God want to be in relationship with me? I'm better than almost everyone I know, and of course, it makes total sense. God would want me. Um, we want to be a realist, and a realist doesn't fall into either one of those categories, as we'll see. So today, let's look at this. To know our limits, two limitations you must accept if you want to be happy. Hey, number one, a wise person accepts the limitation of knowledge of the future. And you think that? No, no kidding but you probably violate this limit or try to all the time. A wise person accepts the limitation of the knowledge of the future. 
The text applies, as I said, in multiple spheres at once to the king's court, those in the king's court, a citizen living under the government, <clears throat> but it's multi-layered, right? While there is a human authority in this text, in between this, the verses of this text, there's another authority above that. And verse 6 brings this out right away, reiterates this point. If you look back at your text at verse 6, for there is a time and a way for everything. It reiterates there's a time for everything, and we've already hammered on that in chapter 3. There was a whole sermon on this in chapter 3, where we had to go and move through the famous passage, that there's a time for everything. There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Someone has appointed these times. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. There's a person who is the appointer of all things, an appointer of all times. Verse 6 contains, I think, two things that are important to note and to mark down and to meditate upon. God has determined everything that takes place in the universe. That's the first. Who makes time? Who appoints time? This fact alone is a great limitation on us. We aren't the one who appoints what is the time and the day of our birth. We didn't determine what we would look like or the genetics we would have or the parents we would have. God has appointed all of these things. Where would you would be born? To who you would be born? What time in history you would be born? What teachers you would have who would influence you growing up? Uh, what school you would go to in college, who you would meet at college, what man or woman would become your husband, the children that would be born to you, all of these things, every single event, every single point in time determined by God. Your service in the military determined by God. What you would do when you were in. Would you deploy or would you not deploy? What would you do there? Would it be bad things that happened and that you would carry with you the rest of your life? Would it be easy? All of these things determined by God. The days that which we look at and we say, these days are full of great meaning. I can see their importance. The other days that seem meaningless. All of these days of your life appointed by God. Every event, every encounter, every situation appointed by God. There's a time for everything. We don't make them. We're obviously limited. Second thing you need to meditate on. In every time and every circumstance in your life, there is an appropriate way. You see it in verse 6, there's a time and a way. Now the word for way, it's an interesting word. The Hebrew language is interesting. The word for way is, most of the time it's translated as judgment. Judgment. It can also mean a manner or a custom. Right? So what's customary to do at a funeral? Not laugh and tell jokes, right? So it can mean judgment, it can mean custom or manner, but it also can mean decision. It can mean decision. So here's what this word is trying to drive home to us, I believe. <clears throat> there, is a there is a time, an appointed time, every moment in your life, and in every moment in your life, there is a correct way to live in it. There's a correct decision to make. This is, of course, a great mystery of life because on the one hand, we are affirming uh, without any uh, shame at all whatsoever God's absolute sovereignty over every single thing that takes place in the universe. And at the, the next instance, we are now affirming that you have an actual real choice to make. And the choice that you make, there is a correct one. And there is one that is not the correct one. And if you make the wrong one, it has real life consequences for your life. If you make the right choice, it can lead to your happiness, to your flourishing. If you make the wrong choice, it can lead to your pain and your suffering. And you can see how this obviously applies into the court of the king. Should I stand against him? There's a correct answer. Do you know which one it is? Which one will end in your ruin? Which one would end in your prosperity? But of course you don't know. You don't know. 
But whatever the choice that we make, we should also understand this, that even that choice and what follows has been ordained by God, that we cannot alter and change God's plan, that even his appointing of the times has included all of the choices, that, the real choices that you would make. It's, of course, a great mystery, and <clears throat> I feel no need to explain it away because the Bible affirms both of those. So you think of this contextually in the king's court. Rebel against the king. Will it go well for you? Will it go bad for you? Question him publicly as he makes a decision. There's a correct decision to make. How do you know which one it is? In verse 6, the latter half of that gets at this idea of how it troubles us. The reason that we are troubled, Solomon says, is because we don't know what choice often is the right one. That's the great trouble of verse 6. Although a man's trouble lies heavy on him, we want to know what decision we should make, and we, we don't always know. We wish that we did. Four links us to, uh, into verse 7. Why are we troubled? Verse 7, he tells us explicitly why we're troubled. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? You're troubled because your knowledge of the future is limited. You don't know what will happen. If you knew what would happen, then you could make the correct choice every time. But you don't know what will happen. I like how the NASB puts it. If, if no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? And of course, then you can see how this, this vexes us. It causes us... Um, trouble. We're troubled in spirit and in our heart. No amount of human wisdom, no amount of intellect can predict the future. You cannot with 100% degree of certainty know if you act this way that this thing will happen. And this troubles us. It troubles us greatly. Matthew Henry, he, he, uh, he said this about this passage. It cannot either be foreseen by him or foretold him. The stars cannot foretell a man what shall be, nor any of the arts of divination. God has in wisdom concealed from us the knowledge of future events, that we may be always ready for changes. It is, it is our great unhappiness and misery that because we cannot foresee an evil, we know not how to avoid it or guard against it. And because we are not aware of the, pro of the proper successful seasons of actions, Therefore, we lose our opportunities and we miss our way. So not only can we miss out on things, like we, there's an appropriate way we could have seized it. We didn't act it and we missed out on something great. We might act in a way that isn't just missing out. It, it might bring upon us uh, suffering or calamity. And, and so we wish we could know what would happen. And if we did, well then of course we'd always make the right decision because we would know the right way at any given time. And so you've got to accept this limitation. It's just something you have to accept. You can't run through life worrying and thinking about the future. There are some people that this is all that they do. They worry about everything that could happen in life. And so they just don't even live because all they do is worry about everything. How often do you stress about what's going on in your life? What, what, what's going to happen to you tomorrow? How often do you stress about what will happen to you tomorrow? Or what will happen later this year? How often do you stress about what's going to happen in five years, in ten years? It's a pretty common problem that vexes us. I don't know where I heard this before. It's famous. You probably heard it. That 99% of the things you worry about don't happen. And the 1% that do happen, you're powerless to change them. That's not from the Bible. That's just like people observing the universe, like observing gravity. It's true, though. Think about it. All the things in your life you've worried about, most of them never happened. The things that happened that you didn't like, you couldn't have changed anyway. Just think about pre-COVID. I'll give you one that you just can't argue with. Just think about your life pre-COVID. I remember pre-COVID. Coming off of the end of football season, and Drake's playing as a freshman, the only freshman playing on the varsity football team. They made it the furthest they've ever made it in the playoffs. It was a great time. 
Life is good. Baseball season's about to start. Now we hear about, uh, you know, this thing called COVID that may be in China. We start hearing about that in December. All of the things that I worried about that for 2020, 2021, and all of the things, right? And the same thing for you. There's all these things you worried about that are going to happen. And not a single one of them happened. COVID happened. And a million things you never dreamed of would happen and ruined everybody's life, right? You weren't even thinking about it. All the things you worried about would happen, none of them happened. And so we have to accept this limitation. You don't know what the future holds. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. So accept this limitation. Accept it. Or just go through life miserable. That's the alternative. But what's behind our struggle, really, with this limitation? Have you thought about it? We struggle that we don't know the future. It, it vexes us, causes us trouble. What's behind it? I think there are, two, there are two errors behind it. The first one has to do immediately with this point. The, the second one, the second error, really has to do more with the second point we're going to look at. The first one is the, there's a lack of trust of God. We just don't trust God. We don't trust him. We don't trust that his wisdom, his goodness, his care for, for us, that he knows what's good for us, that, that he, no matter what happens, good or bad, he has the best of intentions. He's going to conform us to the image of the Son. We don't really trust him in that. And so we're just worried about the future all the time. Anything that can be worried about, we're worried about it. But what's behind it? You just don't trust God. Second one is presumption. We'll look at that one. Next, we presume upon God. We want so desperately to be able to shape our future into the, this ideal we have in our mind that we think is best for ourselves that we worry about, about the future. And when all of these things don't work out and they don't fit or we can't make them fit, then this is where it really, it really troubles us. I'll give you a good illustration for this from my own personal experience. I decided to leave the Army, and you know, that's a big process, a big ordeal. You have to resign your commission like a year out, you know, so here we are. We're getting a year out. I'm going to pursue ministry. So here's the plan. I leave the Army, move to Fort Worth because um, that's where I wanted to go. I'll go to Fort Worth, go to school there. Angie gets a job in Fort Worth. Everything's good. Everything's great. Just have to sell our house. And everything's good, right? I'm like, oh, we could sell our house right now. We'll probably, we'll probably make about $50,000. And I've got to sell my GTO, too. I've got to sell the GTO, the 1970 GTO. Unfortunately, had to go. One of the great regrets. One of the great regrets. And I'm like, it's okay, because I'll make some good money. I'll make good money on this thing. I'll sell this for a lot of money. So I think, I'll, you know what, I'll probably get out of here with $75,000. And that's, that's good money, right? And big life change, money in the pocket. Everything's good. So I go to backwards planning because, you know, that's, that's it's just like my thing. So I backwards plan out my life for like a good two years out, like every detail of it. This step, this step, boom, 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 boom. And it works good, you know, like if you're calling in fire or something. It doesn't really work that great in reality, um, as I found out. And so I step, I have it all set out. Well, then something happened. What happened? Well, it's called the housing bubble collapse. Do you remember the housing bubble collapse? And the recession that followed, well, now nobody's buying houses. Guess what, guess what else people aren't doing with their free money? Buying old muscle cars, right? So I'm about to get out, have no source of income, can't sell a house, can't sell a car, none of the plans are working. So, you know, Angie and I were sitting there, we're thinking, we're talking, and... She has an idea. She has a thought. She says, well, maybe I could get a job in Kansas City. And, you know, I really didn't want to go to Midwestern Theological Seminary. It was like the redheaded stepchild. If you're a redheaded stepchild, I'm sorry, but that's just the thing people say, right? It was the one that no, I didn't want to go to. It was the bottom of the list. It's really cool now. Like, it's the cool place to go now, how things have changed, right? And I did not want to go there. In fact, I think I said something to the effect of that hell would freeze over before I ever went there. And I'm being serious. God has a way to, la to mock us and laugh at us. And so I say, you know what, I, I suppose, I guess. So 
We, uh, we are one week later, we're up in Kansas City. We go, we visit the school. After we visit the school, Angie's like, what do you think? I said, well, if this is where God wants me to go, then I guess this is where I'll go. Maybe five minutes later, the phone rings. Hey, um, we'd like to offer you a job at this place uh, in Kansas City, right? Come back home. That's Saturday, I believe. Come back home Monday morning. I get a phone call. Phone, phone call is at like 7 a.m. So I just get done with PT. It's a guy in Houston. He's like, hey, you still got that car? I'm like, yeah, I still got it. Of course, you know. Like, um, well, don't sell it till I get there. I'm, I'm driving up from Houston right now. I'm like, okay. Like there's any worry that's going to happen. He drives up, looks at it, puts a magnet on it to make sure it's not like bondoed up or whatever. Doesn't even drive it gives me the money, and drives off. The, that afternoon, our realtor calls us and says, hey, I got a buyer for your house. Now, I didn't take all that money with me. I took a big hit, took a big hit, uh, but it happened. And I learned a good lesson. I'm not in control of anything. Literally nothing that I had planned happened the way I had planned it out. So all of the worrying I put in was for nothing. It was for nothing. We can't control the future. We're powerless. We're limited in this regard. I'm sure you can identify with this. I'm sure you can identify with that weakness of wanting to know and to be able to shape and to control. And so we fight against it. And when we do, it's worry, worry and anxiety. So embrace it. Just embrace the limitation. Embrace it. Trust God. Just learn to trust him. Now, here's an obvious question that has to arise. Then how do we make decisions? We just float through life like on the lazy river? Just on my inner tube, floating down the lazy river of God's providence. Well, we have to make decisions in life. How do we make them? How do we choose? How do we know what to do? And I'm pretty simple. Right? You should know that by now. I'm a pretty simple person. And I have simple rules. One of them is don't play Bible 8-ball. You know what I'm talking about? You shake the eight ball up. Should I move to Kansas City? Yes. Right? Some people do it with the Bible. Should I move to Kansas City? Show me somewhere in the Bible. Uh, make it drop on a page. Give me a word. Here's, here's what I've learned. It's a simple philosophy. You can, you can take it or leave it. Apply it to your life. Here's the only thing. The only real question to ask is, if I do this, can I glorify God in this or not? That's it. One question. That simple. It gets a little more complicated, I guess, when there are more than one choice available to you, and both of those you could glorify God in. right? Can I glorify God in this? Yes. Can I glorify God in this? Yes, of course. Um, so then the secondary question, which one of these is going to be better for my wife and kids? Which one of them is going to help them to be better and prosper better? That's the second question. Now, how might you apply it to your life? Where should I work? Simple questions, right? Where should I attend college? Variety of choices. Probably multiples are good. What church should I become a member at? Same questions. Can I glorify God here? Which one's best for my wife and kids or my husband and my kids? Like, you answer those questions together. Which one's best for us as a family? Uh, but what about something more complicated, like maybe a little more serious? You're like, there's, there's, some, there's more... On, on the line here, like, who do I marry? Who do I marry? How do I know who do I marry? Suppose you've been dating a couple of guys, and you know what? Both of them are candidates. You say, oh, they're both Christian men. I could glorify God by marrying either one of these men, my, par my parents, my families. They love both of them. Like, they, you could go either way. Like, how do you know who to marry? You just flip, you flip a coin, you know, you, you break out their room and through them. No, no, I don't think so. There's a, there's a simpler explanation. You pick the one you like the most. Right? Pick the one you like the most. And that's how Angie ended up with this guy. Now you know. Now you know. It was me versus another guy. And so my grandma said, all is fair in love and war. And so it became war. And this guy won. This guy triumphed. He picked the one. So these are simple. This is a simple grid. You don't know the future. You're not just going to say, okay, since I don't, I'm just going to ride along. Where God takes me, he takes me. 
You've got to make choices. You have to choose. You have to make real decisions. Just ask the question, can I glorify God or not? If you can't, don't do it. If it's not going to help your family and your kids, don't do it. This, these are, these are, this is a simple way to live. And you have the Holy Spirit to help guide you, to help you to see how you can glorify God or not. So accept the first limitation. You have to accept it. You cannot know the future. Second one, a wise person accepts the limitation of power in the present. Like I said, I think Solomon is like, he's like a genius. What's behind the struggle in the first limitation is this second error. It's presumption. We presume. Here's the first thing we presume. We presume many things. But one thing we presume is we say, okay, I can't, I can't know the future. But guess what I can do? I can control right now. And really, I'm a free person of libertarian freedom. That's the natural state of man. I can control everything in my life right now. And if I control every moment, if, I'm powerful, if, I, if I have power over every moment of my life, and I focus intensely on every moment, well, then I can shape the future. I'll shape the future by being in control right now. And who would, who would argue that you're in control right now? Right? Hardly anybody. Well, Solomon would. Solomon does. And so, of course, we should as well. We presume we have power over our lives more than we really do in the here and now. And Solomon, he cuts, he cuts that argument right out. Your presumption, he just, he just cuts it right out. And he gives four ways you're powerless right now. Four ways you are powerless in the present. And he does it by giving one that really no one's going to argue with. They're going to say, yeah, that's obvious, that's common sense. And then he's going to give you one that people argue with. So it's like an ABAB type of a situation. And this is verse 8. Um, so he states the obvious. And the first one, if you look at your text, is that you are powerless over the wind. Now, your text, like the ESV, might say spirit. So the text would then create some type of a thematic synonym. You're powerless to retain the spirit, and you're powerless over the day of death. They go together. Um, I think the NASB and the Holman, they translate it in a way that keeps, I think, the argument, which is an ABAB. One you're not going to argue with, one you will. And the one you're not going to argue with would be wind. You can't, re you can't restrain the wind. Um, it is also po entirely possible that he's doing what's called a double entendre. That's a word or, or this idea that he's communicating two things. That's entirely possible as well. But if we stick with the ABAB, because it fits better with what comes after this, one you can't argue with, you can't retain the wind. So if you think you're power powerful and you're not limited right now, can you stop or restrain the wind? What's, that's the most common thing we, we, uh, we have here in Oklahoma, isn't it? It's like our number one resource. It's wind. We can't control the wind. Now, we can understand wind. We can study it. We can understand it. We understand you know, the atmospheric pressure differences that cause it, maybe even predict it to some degree. And you know, Parker, he's one of our elders. This is his job. His job is to harness the wind. He, he pulls in the energy from the wind. He manages all these wind farms. He can predict it, maybe move the windmills, try to catch it, but he's powerless to control it. He can't control the wind. He can't stop it. He can't make it blow. People don't really understand how hard the wind blows here. You know, If you just moved here, you're going to figure it out pretty soon. They just don't get it. And when we would move around the Army, my dad, his favorite joke, I could always bank that it was coming. You know, he'd tell it in chapel all the time from Oklahoma. You guys ever been to Oklahoma? Well, I'll tell you this. In Oklahoma, when the wind blows, you get white caps in your toilet bowl. That was his favorite one, his favorite joke. And it's true. I mean, it's true, but it's because of the venting systems. You never notice that? Well, you'll, you'll notice. Not white caps, but it moves. That's us. Next time you think you're powerful over the present, right, you have that libertarian spirit, when you hear that wind howling at night against your house so hard that you think it might actually fall in on you and you might die in your bed. You guys ever have that? That's Oklahoma. Next time you think that you have this great freedom and power over this present moment, just command the wind to stop. And you'll understand that you're powerless and you're limited. 
but there's one who can restrain the wind. Of course, we know this, so does Solomon. Proverbs 34 says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Isn't that interesting? What is his name? Yahweh. What is his son's name? Jesus. One of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is Mark 4, 35 to 41. And my favorite person to hear it tell, tell it is R.C. Sproul, of course. If you never heard R.C. Sproul tell the story of Jesus calming the wind, you need to go look it up today and watch it. Jesus was on the sea with his disciples. This is what the text says. When evening had come, he said to them, let's go to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And then they were filled with great fear. Why are they afraid? Who can restrain the wind? Not man. Right. That's Yahweh. You're powerless. Something as simple as the wind, you can't stop it. You can't restrain it. Know your limitations, and it will lead to happiness. Accept it. Second, you're powerless over the day of death. Okay? No one argues with that. Of course, you can't restrain the wind, but they'll argue against this. I can change the day of my death. I can affect the outcome. Right? This is like a, an American obsession. How many time travel movies are based off of this idea? This is the one people contend with. People contend with this one. I can alter my death. You can't alter the day of your death. It's appointed for you to, to be born. It's appointed for you to die. If you're the richest man in the world, you could not buy a single hour. Jesus talks about this in Luke 12, 25. Now, you might not have paid attention to the detail. I want to draw it out. Luke 12, 25 through 26, you know, this is about anxiety and worry and sparrows, hairs on your head, all that. He says this, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? Can you? Of course, everyone thinks they can. That's why they worry all the time. Can you add a single hour to your life? Jesus says you can't. He says if you then are not able to do a small thing as that, <laughs> and that's the detail that I missed and you probably did too, that's a small thing. To him, it's an impossibility to you. You can't add a single hour to your life if you can't do such a small thing. And he says, why are you anxious about the rest? Why are you anxious about the rest? You can't even add a single hour to your life. It's a small thing to him. I just think that's amazing. Embrace your power, powerlessness. You're limited just like you can't restrain the wind, you can't change the day of your death, you can't add an e a single hour to your life. Psalm 139.16 says, You saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now the second, obvious and not so obvious, right? you are powerless over the discharge from war. You look back at your text. Interesting. He brings this one up. This is a no-brainer. It's like you can't restrain the wind. Guess what else you can't do? When war starts and you're a soldier, you're not getting out. You're not getting out of it. And you go up to the first sergeant. You're like, oh, first sergeant, you know what? Like, it's really stressful over here. Like, I didn't know it would be this stressful. You know, I, I can't sleep that good at night because they, they keep shooting rockets and mortars at us every night. I just can't get a good night's sleep, and I decided, you know, I don't, I don't think war, I don't think the war thing is really my deal. 
I think I'm going to head out. Not this is not happening. It's not happening. War starts. You're a soldier. You go. You're in. You're not coming home. You're coming home when it's done, right? Obvious. No one argues with that. It's obvious in his culture. It should be obvious in ours. <clears throat> now the one that people fight against. Look back at your text uh, in verse 8, the latter part of verse 8. Just as that is foolish to think that, that you could come home from war, it's just as foolish to think that a person's wickedness would deliver them. That's what he's saying. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Your wickedness will not deliver you. Now, we may struggle, as Solomon has struggled, and, and we do, and we recognize and we see that it seems like wicked people prosper all around us. We've interacted with this theme before. You can look and you can see, well, look, they've got everything I don't have. Nice job. They even have maybe a good family, it looks like, from the outside. They've got cars. They've got things. They've got this big retirement plan. They're even living a long time. Like all of my friends who love God, they're just like die all the time. And it looks like the wicked have the right thing figured out. They've got the right way to go. But he says, your wickedness will not deliver you. Deliver you from who? It's an obvious question. Well, if we're sticking contextually to the idea of the king, if you, if you take your stand in an evil cause, in a wicked cause against the king, I think he has in mind, I can't help but think, I just can't help it, I just go there, that he's thinking about his brother, his brother, his brother Absalom, who took his stand in a cause in a wicked way against his father, against King David. Even though King David has the promise from God, he has the covenant. How wicked and foolish do you have to be to go against God's promise? And yet we know Absalom made this big coup, and it looked like the coup was going to work. It looked like the coup was going to be a success. But just when it looked like it was going to be a success, what do we see? There's someone working behind the scenes, laying everything in place for everything to collapse in upon Absalom. His wickedness would become his own undoing. Absalom's wickedness would not deliver him out of the hand of the Lord. And it is the reality, and that reality is the same for all men. All men. Because behind the king is a greater king. Rebellion against this king in wickedness, your wickedness will not deliver you. Will not deliver you when you face him. At the end of your life, you're all going to stand before God in judgment. Every single person here, right? Even Christians, we stand before God and we stand in Christ, but everyone will appear before him. The wicked will stand before God in their wickedness, and their wickedness will not deliver them on that day. But here's a troubling thought that I had. Because you might would say, of course, I agree with you. Everyone here, even those that are here that aren't Christians yet, whether they be kids or adults, you might say, well, I, but I'm not wicked. All right, I do the best that I can. You know, I'm a good neighbor. I try to be a good parent. I try to be a good kid, obey my parents. Um, I'm not wicked. So here's this troubling thought I had that I'll share with you. What does Isaiah say? In Isaiah 66, or 64, verse 6, what does he say? He doesn't say wickedness is like a polluted garment. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Let me translate it. Solomon says, your wickedness will not deliver you. Wickedness will not deliver you on the day of judgment. Isaiah says, your righteousness is as wickedness and will not deliver you. Human righteousness won't deliver you on that day. The very best that you have to offer to God. Your very best, your righteousness is just a variation of shade of wickedness to God. So, know your limitations. Know your limitations. There are two limitations that we must live by. <clears throat> if you want to be happy in life, if you want to become the best person, the best version of yourself, 
you have to accept these limitations. You, you have to accept. A wise person accepts the limitation of the knowledge of the future. You cannot run around trying to know the future and affect the outcome. Trust God. A wise person accepts the limitation of power in the present. You will then also realize, while I think it's my default position to think I'm in control here and can do everything and thus shape my future, I am powerless in this realm as well. I can't control the wind. I can't control the point of the day of death, discharge of war. Wickedness won't deliver me. But there is one who has no limitations. There's one who has no limitations. He has appointed every time, every season, every event, every happening, every coincidence, supposed coincidence that we see, every circumstance that we see. He controls the future. He controls the present. He can restrain the wind and he can let it loose. He appoints the day of birth. He appoints the day of death. Wisdom accepts our limitations and it clings to the one with no limitations. Let go of your need to feel in control. Also, flee from the sin of presumption. Flee from the sin of presumption. First, presuming that you're in control. Right? This is the thing that I kept coming back to, the presumption of man. And even Christians do this one. Presuming that you're in control. You're not. Rest in the one who is in control. Rest in Christ. Your destiny is tied to Christ. If you are a Christian, your destiny is tied to Christ. So why would you worry? Why would you worry about the future? Second, if you aren't a Christian yet. Friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian uh, there are many here that aren't Christians. I, I know this fact, and, and I wish to speak to you directly now. Don't presume upon God. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, whether you're an adult, whether you are a young child or somewhere in between, don't presume upon God. Don't presume that God will accept you based on your terms. You say to yourself, I've got terms and conditions, and God accepts them. That is a major presumption, that you're good enough, to think that you're good enough for God, that he would accept you based on just who you are. That is an immense error of pride. That's an immense error of pride. Don't presume upon God. Don't presume he'll, he'll accept you based on your good works. Paul tells us, right, because by works of the law, no human being will be justified before his sight. No human being will be justified before God based on works. You're not the exception. You're not. He'll go on to say in Galatians 2.16, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so here we find the answer. And you're not the exception. Would you be right with God? You come on his terms. right? The king behind this king has terms for your surrender. And you don't make them. He makes them. The terms of surrender are faith in Christ. And anyone can come. Anyone may come to Christ. No matter who you are, you may think to yourself, you know what, I, you couldn't even imagine the life that I've lived, the things that I've done against God, the sins against him and against people. You wouldn't want to know. It'd make you blush. Well, God knows. He knows all of it. And he still tells you to come to Christ. Here's the terms of conditions. Throw down your weapons of war of your rebellion. Surrender to Christ. That's it. That's available to you now. That's available to you right now. He sets the terms. The terms were based on our own limitation. We talk about human limitations, and we're talking and thinking about Christmas as we move into it. That God sent his only son whom he loved. That's what we celebrate. He was born as a child. Why was he born and raised as, as a real human? Because of your limitation. You could never meet the demands of the law. Christ met them perfectly. He lived a perfect life. And so he could die for sinners as he had no sins. 
You couldn't justify yourself. You're under the wrath of God. God in his great love and mercy, he meets that limitation, the sending of a son, and these are the terms. Turn from your sin and trust Christ. This is it. This is the only stipulation that we have. You're completely powerless. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, you are completely powerless. You are limited in every single respect before God. Know your limitations. You and I, no person can stand alone before God. We must stand in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. A righteousness that depends only upon faith. This is it. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. All our good works are nothing. Throw them off as Paul did. Cling to Christ. To be found in him having a righteousness that is not my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness that depends on faith. Believe. What what do you say? What do you mean? What does it mean to have faith in Christ, to receive that righteousness? To, To have faith in Christ is to trust him completely. To say, I can't justify myself before God. I bring nothing to him. But he's given me everything. So I simply believe it, and I trust him. Trusting Christ is like driving over a bridge. I've often thought about this, right? When you drive over a bridge that someone has built, you never stop to ask, who's the engineer? What materials are in this bridge? When was it constructed? When is it going to need to be refurbished? You just drive on it because you know it's going to hold you up. And coming to Christ is like that. You hear the gospel that God has given him, and you say, I believe what you said, God. I am now going to place myself into Christ. I'm banking all of my eternity upon him, and I'm believing in him, and I'm resting in him. I take you at your word. But there's another form of presumption, perhaps even more sinister than presuming that you could come to God on your own terms. There's another form of presumption, and it is this, that you have heard the gospel many times. There are many people here, many people here, and I see your faces sometimes at night before I go to sleep on Saturday night, and I think I'm a failure. I have preached the gospel to you for years, adults and children, and I see your face, and it haunts me at night. And it's because you are living in the sin of presumption. You think that God will give you another time to respond. You acknowledge to yourself, I am indeed a sinner. I know and I have heard it. My parents have taught it for me from when I was a young age. I'm grown up now. I've heard the gospel my whole life. And I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't justify myself before a holy God. But guess what? I'm just not going to do that today. I'll do that later. For whatever reason in your mind, you think, I've got more time. I've got another, I'll have another chance. God's always been there calling me to himself. He'll always be calling me to himself. And one day when I am good and ready, I'll get around to responding to God. That is a gross sin of presumption. You think God will give you another chance. You can't come to him unless he calls to you and beckons you to come. Why would you think he would give you another chance? Do you presume upon his kindness and his mercy? Do you think he will give you another day other than today? Isaiah tells us that God calls to us. He tells us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Brothers and sisters, he is near now. He may be found now. Tomorrow doesn't exist. The past is gone. Tomorrow doesn't exist. It may never get here. There is right now, and the Lord is here now, and he calls. He makes his appeal. The good shepherd calls to those who would listen. He throws open the gate wide to green pastures and calls you to eternity. Do you presume he will do it tomorrow? Listen to me. You might not not get another chance to respond to the gospel. The end of 2022. This may be the last time he ever calls to you. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, oh, here it is. Here's the cliche. Here's the cliche we all know about where the preacher goes. You might not get another time. 
You might not get another day. There might not be a tomorrow for me. What a cliche. And you think to yourself, it's just a manipulation. It's just a way to put pressure. It's just being dramatic. I'll tune it out. You know, I'll look at, I'll look at my phone. I'll scribble on this piece of paper in front of me. I'll tune out what he says. He's just doing the preacher thing. October 2017, I did the funeral of a young man who's 18 years old. A couple weeks before, I said the very same things to him I'm saying to you right now. I spent two hours with him sitting at Ted's, Ted's Mexican restaurant. Over two hours, explained to him the gospel and pleading with him to respond to the gospel, answering his objections. And he had a particular sin. I didn't even bring it up. He brought it up himself. He had this particular sin that he loved, right? He wanted to indulge in. And his idea was when he was done, then perhaps maybe he would come to Christ when he was done with that sin. Because that was his love. But he knew Christ offers eternal life. He offers everything to you. He says, count the cost, though. Count the cost. Lay down your sin. Lay down that which you love and come to me. But he wasn't ready. So before I drove him, when I drove him home, I drove him back to his apartment. Before I get out of the call, I made the car made one more appeal. I said, okay, listen, before you go to bed tonight, and it was getting late, before you go to bed tonight, please, just one more time, consider the gospel. Consider what you have heard, that Christ died for sinners just like you, that he is calling and offering you forgiveness free. It's eternal life. You'll know happiness and peace like you've never known in your life. Consider it one more time, and please consider giving your life to Christ tonight. Will you do that? Please. Yes, I'll, I'll do that before I go to bed. He gets out of the car, walks up to his apartment, and he never went to sleep. A few hours later, he was walking on the, down 38th Street, right over here, walking on 38th, headed south, and a car struck him, hit him. Flew, he flew through the air, was immediately in a coma, was sent to Oklahoma City by helicopter, and he never woke up. And he died. I did his funeral. A kid I didn't even really know. Friends, do not presume upon God. If he's been gracious enough to organize all of the circumstances of your life to bring you to hear the gospel, if he's been that gracious, do you dare presume upon him that he will do it again? The sin of presumption might be the last sin you ever commit. As you sit there and you breathe and your heart is beating and you feel its rhythm, it's beating the mercy and grace of God through your veins. And at any moment, he might remove that mercy from you. Friends, what could I say to convince you? What more could I say to convince you that I haven't already said? What, what could God do for you that he has not already done that would win you? It's not the giving of his only son whom he loves enough to demonstrate what he would do to have you? Satisfying the wrath that you deserve to bear in yourself, that Christ bore in himself and Conquering death by rising on the third day, is that not enough to win you to himself? What more could God do that he already hasn't done? I speak, I speak to you as an ambassador. God making his appeal through me to you. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, I appeal to you on behalf of God. Be reconciled to God today. For he has said, in a favorable time I have called to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. God has opened the door. It's open. The good shepherd he calls to his sheep. He calls you by name. Will you come?
There is a time and there is a way for everything. God has appointed the time. He's appointed this time. This time for you to hear the gospel. And a man or a woman's troubles which lie heavy upon their heart is that they don't know what is the right way to respond in that time. But there is this time. And you know the correct way to respond. The only response is to surrender to Christ. I pray that you will. If you are ready to come to Christ today, I will be at the back. And if you want to grab me, we can go into a side room. If you want to talk to George, he's right up here. Dave is right there. Philip is somewhere. He'll probably be up here playing guitar in a bit. You need to grab one of us today. And you don't leave. If God has called to you today, if you have heard his call, then today you respond. And I will be so happy to talk with you. I pray that you will. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. I pray that your people, God, your church, I pray that we would readily embrace the limitations you've set upon us, knowing that as we embrace them, we are resting in you. And I pray that that would bring us great comfort and joy and peace as we move into this season of celebrating the first coming of Christ into the world. May we do it with gladness and may there be much celebration and happiness no matter what's going on in life, knowing that you care for us and that you are the master of our future. For those here that do not know you, we are powerless. God, we humbly ask that you would do a work in their life. We rely upon you alone for salvation, and we ask that you would bring many to salvation today. In Jesus' name, amen.